How can you describe something like the ocean to a child that's never been there before? How can you imagine, if you've never seen it, a body of water so huge that it can blanket half of the globe? The Lord asked Job, Who shut up the sea with doors when it break forth as if it had issued out of the womb? When I made a cloud, the garment thereof, in thick darkness, a swaddling band for it, and break up for my decreed place, and set bars and doors, and said, Hitherto shalt thou come, but no farther, and here shall thy proud ways be stayed. I'll never forget that first time as a child, when I went with my family to the ocean shore. The excitement and marvel as I marveled at the grandeur of the waves crashing on the beach and just the sand extending farther than the eye can see and to look out past the crashing waves across the sea of blue and to imagine that somewhere, somewhere beyond that sea lie a distant land thousands and thousands of miles away. That if I had, and I, I, I wish I had done this as a child, I never did, if I had written down a little message, put it in a bottle and put a cork in that bottle and tossed it into the sea, that maybe one day, years later, that bottle would wash up on a distant shore. Or that maybe as I combed down the shore of that beach, I might find a bottle with a message from another time and another place washed up from halfway around the world. How can you describe such a thing to a child like I was, who was born in the middle of the continent and grew up until I was nine years old, never having seen the ocean before? Can you put that ocean in a bottle and take it home? You could open it up and smell it You'd have a little sniff of it. But would that in any way represent the grandeur and might? A little vial of salt water. Would that, how would that represent the mighty raging ocean? Let me ask you a question. Who is God? Who is God? If there is one belief that is held in common by all Christians and indeed by most religions of the world, it is the belief in God. You know, while we as Christians may dispute virtually every other point of belief, I have yet to meet a practicing Christian who does not believe in the existence of God. We may dispute his character. We may dispute his attributes. We may dispute virtually every other aspect of religion. But if one fact remains in common across all of Christianity, it would be the belief in God. Yet, if I were to ask ten Christians, who is God? So, as surprising as it may seem, I would probably get a variety of responses. Well, of course, you might say he is the one that created the world, and that is true. He is the father of Jesus. He's the one that lives up in heaven. But that doesn't answer my question. I asked, who is God? 
I'm not asking right now where does he live or even what does he do, but who is he? What is he like? What is his character? And does his existence or his actions have any bearing on our planet today? Does anything that we do or experience have any bearing upon him? And if so, how? And how, pray tell, how do you explain what we see happening every day around us here? I had a co-worker relate an experience to me a few years ago. He thought of it often ever since it had happened, and ever since he related it to me, I have thought of it often as well. He was driving down the highway, and as he was driving along, he happened upon the scene of an accident, horrible accident. He was one of the first people there, and he got out of his car and went over to see how he could help. He, he was not trained as a, as a medical first responder, but, but he tried to do whatever he could, and he went over to the, the driver of this vehicle, who was horribly, horribly injured, and sat there with this lady, trying to do whatever he could to help but basically just sat there and hold her, held her hand while she breathed her last. As he related this story to me, he shared how this haunting memory of this poor woman's death has haunted him every day of his life since. He's woken up in the middle of the night, often reliving that scene in his dreams. And every day he asks one question. Why? Why? Why does an innocent person die a horrible, horrific, tragic death? Why? What good have, could have possibly come from this tragedy? And every day he would relive this scene. And he... Beyond that, he would ask another question. He would say, how could a good and loving God allow this to happen? And you know, friends, it's a serious question. And if we think about it, I dare say that every one of us here have, has asked ourselves this question at one time or another. How could a good and loving God allow such a senseless tragedy to happen? And right here, friends, is the crux of the problem that so many people have with God. Perhaps this is one reason why there are so many atheists in the world today. Follow my reasoning for just a minute. If God is God, then he must be all-powerful. That is, if there is anything or anyone more powerful than God, then God would not be God, because that is basically the definition of God, right? That he is all-powerful. But the Bible describes a God who is not only God, but a God who is good. And if God is good, then he must hate evil. And if God is good, and God is God, then why doesn't he put an end to evil, and suffering, and death? Therefore, many will reason. Therefore, either God is not God. Or if he is God, he is not good. Or at least not entirely so. 
Either God isn't able to stop evil, or he isn't willing to stop evil. If he isn't able, then he isn't all-powerful, and therefore he isn't God. And if he isn't willing, then one would argue that he isn't entirely good. And therefore, a God may exist, but not the good God of the Bible. Now, of course, I'm not saying that I believe this, but this is, in a nutshell, the argument that so many atheists make against the existence of God. They say, God, as described in the Bible, cannot exist. If a God or a supreme being of any kind exists, he is malevolent, he is malicious, he is, he is evil. Because how else can you explain all of this horrendous, horrible evil that we see in this world today? I want to submit to you, friends, that we as Christians today have bought their argument. We've bought the argument, the lie of the devil and the lie of the atheists, and we believe it. We've swallowed their propaganda hook, line, and sinker. And I dare say many well-meaning, well-intentioned Christian preachers today have made many an atheist by our theology. You see... The way we look at God has everything to do with how we relate to the problem of evil in this world. And so many times, good Christians, like my fellow co-worker, hear arguments that go like this in the face of loss. Oh, honey, I'm so sorry for your loss. You see, we can't understand God's ways. God is sovereign. God is all-powerful. His ways are higher than our ways. And, and we know that God has a purpose in everything. You heard this before. He makes everything work together for good. And one day you will understand his purpose. I know it doesn't make any sense right now, but one day you will understand the reason why all this evil happened. Everything goes according to his master plan. He knows the end from the beginning. And although this tragedy is hard for the moment, one day, one day we'll understand. We'll know why. He'll give us a reason, and it'll all make sense. This is what we say. This is what we hear. And we say this to comfort our grieving friends. And when a child dies, I've heard it said, well, not not so much in Adventist churches, but, you know, God must have needed another angel up in heaven. She's probably smiling down on us right now, even though we're all crying. Friends, it sounds wonderful and lovely and flowery, but there's a fatal flaw in this line of reasoning. Listen to me, let me rephrase what I just said and see if you can see if you can hear where it's where it goes wrong. I'm gonna say it again just a little differently. Oh honey, I'm so sorry for your loss. You see, God isn't like you think he is. You think he's kind and good, but really he has a dark side too. God is both good and evil. In fact, God has to perpetuate evil because evil is the tool he uses to bring about a greater good. For some reason, though we can't understand, God has a purpose for all the evil. The Lord gave, and the Lord hath taken away, and blessed be the name of the Lord. Let me ask you this. 
Does God subject his creation to both good and evil in order to reach some better future good? Is God in any way or in some way to blame or responsible for the problem of evil? Is evil a tool in God's tool bag that he uses to bring about good? Or are we perhaps entirely mistaken in our view of who God is? Is it possible that the God of the Bible is really unlike the God that I have just described to you? Is it possible that there's another option? That God can both be God and yet still be good, even in light of all the evil that we see in this world? Is that possible? And if so, how? And how do we explain what we see every day? You see, my friends, many of us, I believe, as Christians, have been far too deeply influenced by a philosophy that comes not from the Bible, but from a number of ancient Greek philosophers. And we've taken this philosophy that came to us from paganism, from Greek mythology, and we foisted it into the Bible, and we read the Bible through some colored glasses. And those colored glasses taint our picture of God until we ascribe to him the attributes of the devil. You see, these ancient Greek philosophers, Aristotle and Plato, viewed the universe as a perfectly ordered system. Everything ran on a track, like a well-oiled machine, in perfect order and harmony. Everything you could see was connected in some way to everything else. And if there was chaos at one level, you just had to look at a higher level to try to find and discover that perfect order in everything in the universe. For the Greek philosophers, the gods existed outside of time and space. They believed in gods, not so much the supreme god, the ruler of the universe, but they, they did have somewhat of a concept of God and, and the gods that existed these gods cared for the world, but they weren't corrupt like human rulers. They couldn't be bought or corrupted. They couldn't be affected by men's gifts or even their prayers. Thus, the gods were the unmoved mover, the ones who pushed everything in their perfect order, who moved all of the planets in their orbits, and yet could not be swayed by anything that happened on earth. God was a God whose purpose was noble, but whose ways were beyond our understanding. A God or the gods whose dwelling was not with men. You had a spiritual realm and a physical realm, and they almost never touched. The soul was part of the spiritual realm. Well, the body was part of the physical realm. So you have this dualism, the soul and the body. You have all these things, and we could go on into Greek philosophy, but I think it's important to understand enough of it to understand where some of these ideas come from. And what I'm saying here is this idea of God as distant and far-removed and absolute and sovereign 
and responsible for all of the good and evil came not from the Bible, but from Greek mythology. And we can go on and we can see how this Greek philosophy has affected the Christian faith. This idea that there's a total separation between the physical and the spiritual realms leads us to believe that God is sitting up here, perhaps aloof to human suffering and need. And then we read some passages in the scriptures, some some phrases in the Old Testament, where it tends to lend credence to this idea, if we already have this idea in our minds, that God is responsible for both good and evil. And it leads us to question in our minds, is God truly good? Once you open your Bibles with me, let's turn to just a few verses in the time we have left and see if we can begin to answer this question in our minds. Let's begin by turning to 1 John chapter 4 and verse 16. And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love. And he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. Friends, the Bible tells us from beginning to end that God is love. Not only is God good, but he is love. And the Bible describes God as not a God who is distant and aloof from human suffering, but a God, as it says here in this verse, who abides in him. A God who is so close to the earth that a human being can abide in his love and God can abide in him. How much closer and more intimate can you get? How much more different can you get from the gods of Greek mythology who sit enthroned in the heavens and are unmoved by human prayers? In Genesis, we read the account of the creation of Adam and Eve. We read how God spoke the world into existence. And yet on that sixth day of creation, when it came time for him to create the man, he did not speak a word, but he knelt down to the earth. And it says in Genesis that the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground with his own hands, in a close and intimate care. And then when he was finished, he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Not a God who is up here and a man who is here. Oh yes, God God is up here. I'm not telling you that, that he's not. But a God who wants to commune with man. And it talks about how the Lord God communed with Adam and Eve day by day. And when Adam and Eve sinned, the Lord came to them in the garden, not as a judge to condemn, but as a friend, an advocate. And rather than going to them in condemnation, he reasons with them. He hears their case. 
he draws out of them their confession and then casts judgment on the serpent. Who is that serpent? The serpent in the tree. We'll come back to that in a minute. But I want to emphasize this point to you, that in every circumstance, in every encounter between man and God, described in the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, God is described as a God of love and a God of mercy. Take the case of Abraham, for instance. The wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah had grown so great that God had to come and, and, and execute judgment against their wickedness. And yet, on his way, he stopped at the tent of Abraham. God, the God of the universe, the one who could speak the world in existence, stopped at the tent of Abraham. And Abraham there pleaded with God, Lord, it's not like you to destroy the righteous with the wicked. If there are 50 men in Sodom, will you save it? If there's 40, 30, all the way down to 10. If there's 10, will you save the city for 10? Can the prayer of a mere human being change the hand of God? Is God the unmoved mover? Or is he one who wants to commune with us? A God not just who is good, but a God of love. When Moses asked to see the glory of God, the Lord hid him in a cleft of the rock. And the scripture records the Lord passed by and proclaimed, we find this here in Exodus chapter 34. Exodus 34 and verse 6, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Not just good, but merciful, gracious and long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth. Another example is the time when the children of Israel had rebelled and God came to Moses and said to Moses, Stand back. I'm going to destroy this whole congregation and I'm going to make of you a great nation. And Moses falls on his knees before the Lord and pleads, Don't do it, Lord. It's not like you to destroy these people. These people are the ones that you made these promises to. And to all accounts, if you take the Bible for what it says, the Lord changed his mind. God changed his mind at the prayer of Moses and spared the nation of Israel. What is God like? If God is good, where does this evil come from? Who was it that was in that snake in the tree, in the garden? Satan. 
Who is it that is in the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Was it God who is good and evil? Or is it Satan who is the author of all evil? In 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse 33, we read that God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all churches and saints. And when we see evil things happening in the world today, is it the responsibility of God? Or is it possible that another agent is at work? We find in Lamentations chapter 3 and verse 33, the Lord does not afflict willingly nor grieve the children of men. You see, my friends, God is God. If we take the Bible for what it says, he is all-powerful, he is omnipotent and omniscient. He is God. But the Bible says that God is also good. How can you reconcile a God who is good with a God who is God? And yet we see the problem of evil. It's because there's another attribute of God. That along with his goodness, God is love. And love demands a choice. Love cannot be love if that is the only option there is. And God did not create evil. He is not the author of evil. But he did create the choice. He created his creatures, his beings, the angels of heaven and people, human beings here on this earth, with the ability to choose either for him or against him. Because without that ability to choose, we would not have the ability to love. And without giving us that ability to choose, he would not be love. And God's love trumps his desire to put an immediate end to evil. He will put an end to evil. He is doing that right now. But for a little while, God in his mercy limits his power. Though he is all-powerful, he limits his power and allows evil to exist because we chose it. And he honors our choice for a little while. And yes, he will bring some good out of it, but that's not the reason for it. That's not the reason for the evil. The reason for the evil we find in a parable that Jesus told in Matthew, Matthew 13, 24. We find ourselves, the best of us, even Seventh-day Adventists, asking ourselves, why? Why? Why does this evil happen? Matthew 13, Jesus tells a parable to his disciples. He says in verse 24, The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. So the servants of the owner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? 
How then does it have tares? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So God, represented here as the good landowner, the good farmer, comes in and plants good seed in his field. And yet, without his knowledge, an enemy enters in and also sows bad seed, evil. And yes, we see this as an analogy of the church. But I see in this parable a picture of the great controversy between good and evil. Friends, why do we see people getting sick and dying? Good people, innocent people. Why are hundreds, thousands, yes, millions of people slaughtered in, in anger, in, in genocide, in, in some of the most horrific and terrible conditions? And it seems as though, to all appearances, that God stands by and does nothing. Do we blame God for the evil? Or do we recognize in the fruit that as Jesus said here in Matthew 13, 28, an enemy has done this? Friends, I want to submit to you today, God is not the cause of evil. He is not the cause of suffering, sickness, and death. He has no part of it. But why doesn't he stop it, you ask? The answer is, he is. He's putting a stop to it as quickly as he possibly can. But because of his love, he can't stop it instantly. Because of the nature of this great battle between good and evil, and because we, you and I, have chosen in our lives and the lives of the human race to enter in on the side of evil. He cannot put an end to it right away. But he is doing it. He's putting an end to evil. And he's done it in a way that you and I and the angels of heaven could hardly imagine. God. Listen to me, friends. God, in the person of Jesus Christ, made himself a human being. Rather than sitting aloof to the suffering of this earth, he came down, 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 all the way to become one of us, and for 33 years, walked the dusty streets of Palestine. Is the God of the Bible a God who is playing a cosmic chess game with the devil? in which the human beings on this earth are just pawns in his game? No, my friends. The God of this Bible is a God who became one of us to suffer the same things that you and I suffer and to die a tragic death at the hands of you and me to show us a picture of God's love. In John chapter 14, verses 8 and 9, Philip asked Jesus, Lord, show us the Father, and it suffices us. And Jesus saith unto him, Have I been so long time with you, 
And yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that hath seen me has seen the Father. And how sayest thou, show us the Father? Friends, I want to submit to you today that Jesus Christ was and is one with his Father. And the picture we have of Jesus Christ is none other than a picture of God himself. Does God have a plan for your life? Jeremiah 29 and verse 11. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Other translations say, I know the plans that I have for you. Friends, God does have a plan for your life. A plan that includes only good. And yes, because of the world we live in, evil will come. Evil does come. And yes, because of God's omnipotent grace, he can turn the evil into good. But if you were to look into heaven right now, if you were to read his plan for you, his plan would have nothing but good in it. O loving Lord and Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you that not only are you a God who can move mountains, but that you have a love and care for each one of your children that surpasses all of our understanding. Lord, I pray that you will keep each one of us in your care. Help us to have the faith in you of a little child. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.